wants to do, not so much in the person next to us. And so that's equally important for myself. And so as we come, I want to start off before giving any more introduction or introduction to the passage in Philippians 3, just to again ask the Lord's blessing. And there's a couple other things I want to specifically uh, just ask the Lord for during this time. So let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we acknowledge it's your word. It's not ours. Uh, It's not what we bring to it. It's not true because we explain it properly. It is living. It is powerful. And so, Lord, I ask that as it goes out, it does exactly what it's intended to do, and that is to change our lives more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, Father, I also ask that you would have mercy on all of us here in that if I say anything that was not directed by your spirit, that in your kindness and your grace, that you would just wipe it from people's minds. But whatever is said that is from you, Lord, I pray that it would be embedded onto our hearts that we might be eternally changed. Lord, I'm also asking very very uh, specifically that when we leave those doors at the end of this time, that the only name that would get any glory would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one worthy. He's the only one who died for our sin. He's the only righteousness we have this morning. So Lord, we look to him and we say, thine is the power and the glory forever. And so we pray all this in his precious name. Amen. Now, as you already know, we're going to be in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. So you can turn there. You can put a bookmark in there. We're going to be hanging out there for the next three days. But as we begin, I want to give a bit of an overview of how we're going to take a look at this passage so we can uh, kind of see it from the same angle, per se. Now, there's something that, as I go through everyday life, I forget to do very often. In fact, if you saw me last night and if you saw me this morning, there was a difference. And that difference was that I'm wearing glasses. Now, the the issue with these glasses is I've actually had them since January. But since January, I could probably count the number of days I've actually worn them. I would guess it's probably between 15 to 20 days since January I've actually worn my glasses. And there's a very uh, vivid reason why I forget to put them on in the morning. And that is because if you wore them right now, if you look through those lens, you would absolutely see no difference whatsoever in your vision. None. Uh, And you say, okay, so are you wearing them for style? Clearly, I'm not wearing them for style, or I would do something else about the rest of me. That is not the issue either. Uh, I was in Colombia, South America earlier this year in January, and and as I was speaking, there was a lady that came up to me afterward, and she said, "I'm I'm an optometrist, and I see you have a problem with your eyes. I said, I do. I did not know that. She says, yes, you blink a lot. I said, okay. So what does that mean? She's like, I don't know, but let's, let's come to my office and we'll check your eyes. So they checked my eyes. Well, the first thing the doctor said about me was, this is now her husband, who's also an optometrist. He said, Nathan, you see too much. It's like, I didn't know that was a problem. <laughs> they said, yes, you have 130 to 150% vision of the normal person. Uh, I was still looking for the problem. They said, but you need glasses. I was like, I need glasses. 
They said, yes, um, basically your eyes don't lubricate, and so you need glasses. I don't know exactly what they're for even. Something to protect my eyes and something about they make my eyes more moist and, I don't know, work more effectively. I don't know. Now I see like 170%. Like I'm literally looking at Chennai right now. You can't see it, but I can. I mean, like, yeah, it's incredible. All right. So the point being is I forget to wear my glasses because they don't make I, – I see you the same. Uh, now I just have an obstruction. But you see – Oftentimes, I think that we forget the lens that we're supposed to look at things through. And the reason is sometimes we don't see the immediate impact it's actually having, when in reality there is an impact. And when Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and we'll discuss a bit more about even how it got to this point, but when Paul's writing to this church, he's saying there's a different perspective that you're supposed to be having. And this perspective is not one that's based at earth level on your circumstances, but rather it's drawn up to what God sees currently in your situations. And and one reason I'm not giving you a big introduction into life, and you can talk about that tonight, is I'll have a lot of illustrations, and that will tell you a lot about my life and different things happening right now. But I want everything to go through this lens of what does it look like from eternity, so as we break down Philippians chapter 3, you're going to notice a bit of a, a, a very clear outline that jumps out. In fact, as you look at this passage, uh, when you get to verses 1 through 11, you're going to see that Paul is really talking about his past. Then when you get to verse 12 through verse 16, and where your key verse comes out of pressing toward the upward call, you're going to have Paul talking about his present But then when you get to verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, you have Paul talking about his future. And it's very clearly uh, articulated by him. This is not a stretch in any way. Also, Paul's going to use three very different uh, positions in society to describe the way he's, uh, he's laying out how he sees things. Again, in verses 1 to 11, this is Paul the accountant, okay? So we've got this man behind a desk. Imagine he's got his, he's got his ledger out or he's got his uh, computer out and he's, he's an accountant adding things up. Then when you get to verses 12 to 16, you're going to see Paul as an athlete, He's going to be out there running this race, straining every nerve toward the goal. But then the last, uh, the last position we find Paul in, in 17 through 4-1, we see Paul the alien, Paul the foreigner, Paul this refugee of sorts. And we see that his citizenship is in heaven, not primarily this Roman citizenship that at times he called out and used, not the fact that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, but rather that he was an alien on earth. And all three are going to have vital lessons for us. I do just want to say in advance, and I'll say it with an apology, but it's not really with an apology where I'm sorry. It's just more of an apology so that you understand. Um, And that is that we may uh, adjust slightly, and and I've already talked to my brother George, so this comes as no surprise to him, but we may adjust slightly just what we cover in each message. We will get through the whole chapter in the will of the Lord. That's not so much my concern. But as the Holy Spirit leads us to focus a little longer on certain aspects, we want to be obedient to that. So just uh, allow a little flexibility in your minds that we don't have to rush something 
in order to um, it, just stay on a schedule. Instead, we'd like to stay on the spirit schedule, whatever that is. So let's go to the Word of God. And what I'd like to just do is read the first 11 verses during this time. And we'll read these same 11 verses this evening. This will be our primary focus of the day. And I encourage you in your own time, make sure. I know you have a quiz on Philippians as well, so that's a a secondary reason. But make sure you're inundating yourself in the Word of God so that as these things are laid out, they're already very familiar and fresh to you. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Finally... My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness or not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. This is a fascinating portion that we begin in because Paul starts this portion off with a word finally. And that, that's a, it's, a, it's a very much, it sounds like a normal preacher, honestly, when they say finally or in conclusion, you know things are not about done, right? Um, so he says finally, it's, it's a word he uses again in chapter 4, verse 8. But I don't, I don't know. There's debate on how this finally is to be taken. And I do think it's significant in us beginning because one way to put it is as for the rest, as in for the rest of you. Let me add on, because before this, he's talking about Epaphroditus, this dear brother and how to receive him in the Lord. And then he's like, finally, as for the rest of you. But I would suggest as well that Paul really was closing out this book. But as he closes out the book as a, as a discipler, as a teacher, as an apostle, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just burdens him with a totally different tone than we have previously in Philippians. If you read chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 2, you have a bit of a gentle teaching father type tone. 
But when you get to chapter 3, it's not so fatherly. It's much more like uh, a teacher who is very intentional on making sure a thought is communicated clearly. Like, not, not a harsh tone, but a very serious tone. And then he gets back to finally, in chapter 4, verse 8, and then he kind of picks up the tone he had previously. So I want to suggest that what's late, not that it's more important than anything else in the book, but I would say there is a different tone. And it starts out with, as to the rest of you. And so what is this heart that Paul has? Well, three things I want you to see, and I'll go ahead and give you these three things. And in the will of the Lord, we'll discuss all three things during this session. But again, as he wills, the three things are these. The first thing you're going to see is you'll see a command in verse one. There's a command. Secondly, you're going to notice a concern, a concern. And that concern is going to come off the page from verse two all the way down to verse six, a little bit into seven as well. A concern. Actually, really just stopping at six, let's say. And then the final portion is there is accounting, accounting going on, not accounting like ACC, just start with C-O-U-N-T-I-N-G, accounting going on. So we see first a command, but this command, by the way, is really a foundation for everything else we're talking about. So don't separate the command, the concern, and the counting as three separate things, but rather see it as building on top of each other. So the first thing is a command. What is the command? Well, look again at verse 1. There is a command to rejoice. Oftentimes we don't see rejoicing as a command, but it is indeed a command. Look at, finally, my brothers or brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The first thing about this command and notice it is a decision. This command is a decision. You say, hang on, it's a command. How is it a decision? Just because the Lord commands us in something does not mean that we don't have a free will to decide if we're going to obey because understand something. When the Lord gives us a command, it is out of love. In other words, he's giving us insight into his heart. He's giving us insight into intimacy. He says, I want you to know me. I want you to enjoy me. This is the command that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. Forgive others as I've forgiven you. These are all commands, but there's still a choice involved. And I want you to see that joy is a choice. And and if it's a choice... It tells me something very powerful about the way I'm going to view the world around me. If joy is a choice, it means joy is not happiness, okay? Happiness is much more a feeling of the flesh. Joy is a decision of the soul. And if it's a decision of the soul, here's the thing about joy. Joy has nothing to do with my circumstances. Now, we see that come out very much more in chapter 4 when he talks about contentment. But let's think about joy in this regard for just a few minutes. When you think about your circumstances, I want to ask you, like, what really do we view our circumstances as? Do we see them as an obstruction to our goals? 
Do we see them as an impediment to our plans? Or do we see them as an opportunity for our ultimate desire? We're going to talk about this ultimate desire tonight, and that is to know Christ. If to know Christ is actually my goal, which I trust it is your goal, if it actually is your goal, I want to tell you something beautiful about your circumstances. I'm going to say this very clearly, and I'll say it twice because I believe every word is meant where it is. You are not sovereign over your circumstances. You are not a slave to your circumstances, but you are a steward of your circumstances. I'm going to say it again. You are not sovereign over your circumstances. That means you're not controlling your life. All right, I'll just tell you clearly how this is true. If you were God... I guarantee there's something you would change about the way things have happened in your life. You wouldn't have had somebody die when they did. You wouldn't have had a relationship break the way it happened. You wouldn't have had an economic struggle the way that you did. You wouldn't have had someone say behind your back what they did. There are many things you would change. That tells me right away, you're not sovereign. Your circumstances have been entrusted to you. But you're also not a slave. In other words, you don't find yourself in the predicament in which you find yourself and be like, oh, woe is me. This is awful. my, My life is in ruins. Not if you belong to Jesus Christ. In fact, that will never be your perspective because nothing concerning your ultimate goal has even been touched. What's my ultimate goal? To know Christ. Okay, if it's to know Christ... I'm not a slave to my circumstances. In no way do my circumstances have me in bondage. Not whatsoever. In fact, my circumstances are working out for my good, according to Romans chapter 8. All things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All right, hang on. So now go back to that third part. I am a steward. Now this gets exciting. It means, it goes back to the 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. It is required in a steward that a man be found faithful. That means that when I stand before God, it's not about, did I accomplish a thousand souls coming to know Christ? It's not, did I become a millionaire? Or did I do that? Or did... No. If that was the goal, I would be discouraged by my circumstances. That's not it at all. It's to be found faithful in what God gave me. See, just recently, like a a few weeks ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. And it could be so easy to be like, oh, I was discouraged. I'm not discouraged. I'm excited. The Lord has given me a new platform, a platform to glorify him, whether it be in surgery or chemotherapy or radiation or death. Nothing is an obstacle. Nothing is a discouragement. This is beautiful. I have a new avenue of ministry. I can access lives I couldn't before. I'll have doctors and nurses that I didn't know. I'll have those that are that are struggling with other health issues that will want to talk. This is a privilege. It's my circumstance. And I can choose to rejoice, not because I'm like pretending. No, there's no pretending here. You can ask anyone that knows me behind closed doors. My excitement's equal. 
the reason for that is I'm a steward. I've been entrusted with this circumstance. And so I get to put on different glasses and see it through the lens of eternity. Have any of my dreams been squelched? Have any of my fires been put out? No. I can still be a faithful steward. I can still glorify God. I have a litmus test I do. And this litmus test I ask myself frequently is, if I find myself in solitary confinement in a forgotten prison somewhere in the world, have any of my ultimate pursuits been ended? And I realize, no, to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, to become like him, oh no. If anything, they've been put on a fast track. We are so blessed in Christ. But it starts out with a decision. And that decision is, will we choose to see things through the lens of eternity? Or will we be trapped in time? We'll discuss this more as we move through and get down to verse 10. But I just want to lay this out for us to start with. But notice, it's not just a decision. It's a, and I, I briefly mentioned, it's also a duty, and I'm not going to focus on that, but a duty as a responsible servant. How is the world going to know we belong to Christ when we respond the same way to the world as they do in their circumstances? See, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this later when we talk about fellowship of his sufferings, okay? So for right now, just set that aside. But it is a duty as a follower of Jesus Christ. But notice this as well. It's not just this decision, and it's not just this duty, it's also a destination. What is the destination? Rejoice in the Lord. When he's saying there's this command, he's saying there's a place where you can rejoice. Now, I'm not telling you rejoice because of your circumstances. I'm not saying rejoice because you love how life is. I'm not saying rejoice because that person hates you. I'm saying rejoice in the Lord. This is not a new theme at all. In fact, when you look through the the book of Philippians and you just kind of quickly take an overview perspective of this, you see Paul has been reiterating this. He he makes his prayers with joy in chapter 1 verse 4. And then he says, uh, I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Later on in verse 25 of chapter 1, he's talking about their joy in the faith. He says, complete my joy in chapter 2, verse 2, by being of the same of mind. Later on, he says, I am glad. This is chapter 2, verse 17. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 28 of chapter 2, rejoice at seeing him again. This has just been a theme. And then we get chapter 4, verse 4. He's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes, you know, when, when, when someone says rejoice in the Lord, you say, well, what am I really rejoicing about? At the end of verse 3 in chapter 4, he tells us what to rejoice about. He, he, he talks about their names being written in the book of life. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I don't know about you, but I don't have to go very far to remember why I rejoice. I know that my God, Jesus Christ, has gone to prepare a place for me. 
And if he goes and prepares a place for me, he will come again and receive me to himself that where he is, I may be also. So all of this first point of a command, which is, in fact, a destination, and it is a duty, and it is a decision, all of this is our defense against the second thing we're about to talk about. It's our defense against uh, these, uh, these enemies that are going to seek to attack us. It's a defense against the concern that Paul has about these distractions that will seek to derail our life. Okay, so let me put this in a different light. All of this command comes down to one thing. It comes down to the word faith. Because I have to ask you a question, and I'm going to illustrate it. The question is this. Is your faith in God... For who he is. Or is your faith in God for what he does? This is really going to define your pressing on. This is going to define where you find joy. It's going to define how much you want to know him. And I'll I'll dive into that later. And it's beautiful. But let's illustrate all this. So to illustrate it, I need somebody who can demonstrate faith. And so I will choose Jobin. Come on up here. Um, and, and I want to give you an illustration of faith. Now, I, I, th- I think that this will just put everything uh, in a way that we can keep coming back to this illustration throughout the weekend. Uh, first of all, as, as Jobin is here, all I'm asking him to do is to trust me. Now, the cool thing about it is I'll tell you straight out. I will not fail his trust, okay? I didn't say he'll trust me. I said, I will not fail his trust. And we're going to start out this whole illustration by something extremely simple. We're going to start out with just a simple trust fall. Trust falls are easy, okay? And we do them as kids all the time. And basically, you cross your arms, you lock your knees. You can always tell if someone's not trusting because they'll bend their knees. So all you need to watch Jobin is make sure that his knees stay locked And when he trust falls, he's going to just fall straight backwards, okay? That will be the example of a trust fall. So we'll come out to the middle aisle so everyone can watch your knees. And and, and just we're going to start out with a simple trust fall, okay? Now, remember, I promise you already, I'll catch him, all right? And and he's, he's totally fine. So let's start out simply. On the count of three, I need you just to totally fall backwards, and I got you. What if I never call you again for the song? Well, well, if you don't call me again, then you won't be in the illustration tomorrow. So, on the count of three, Jobin, one, listen, listen, when the the Lord tells us what to do in life, all right, we don't have to ask a lot of questions, we can trust. Cross those arms, on the, what's that? (laughs) Well, you can play the role of the enemy of the soul if you want, but for right now, just on three, one, two, three. Three. All right, no problem. No problem. That's just start. We're not done. We're not done. All right, but, but, but here's the thing. Sometimes things get a little bit harder. And um, uh, I, I, wanna, I don't trust these chairs. That's the issue here. So uh, is there something I can have him stand on that's not... Uh, what's that? Yes, yeah, so that chair is good. This chair, yeah. That, yeah, uh, table's fine too. But I think those chairs are better. It's not as high either. All right, this is definitely sturdy. Yep, good. But you can trust me more than the chair, okay? So, 
Now I just need you to stand on the chair. Okay? Now, sometimes it thinks he's got a little bit harder. I'm right here. In fact, I'm actually closer this time, okay? So he really should be more confident. All right, make sure those knees are locked. And on the count of three, fall. One, two, three, fall. No problem at all. Okay, we're not done. Step down for a second. Um, but see, sometimes we can't see what God is actually doing, right? Um, I think I noticed that you had a cloth for your baby. Can I use this? It'll be back. Don't worry. So we're going to blindfold you now. All right. And um, make sure that my friend can't see here. Can you see anything? All right. Now come forward. Step up on that chair again. Okay. Good. All right. On the count of three, I need you to fall. One, two, three. Fall. Okay. We're not done. Stand back up. But let's make this a little bit harder, okay? Now, I need everyone to be really quiet because this, I need a lot of concentration, okay? A lot of concentration. So, um, all right. So, yeah, please keep holding that chair right there. That's good because this is a little harder. It's harder sometimes to catch you from the front. But, um, all right, on the count of three, I'm going to need you to fall, but not quite yet. Um, just a second. Let's, let me just move a little bit further right here. Okay. I need you still to keep your knees locked, okay? And so on the count of three, let's say, let me move. No, back. Just trust me. Trust me. I said I will not let you fall. All right. Uh, no, I just want you to trust me. All listen, listen to my word. Listen to my word, not your circumstances. Okay. Uh, no, 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 no. On three. One, one, two, fall backwards. Three, go. Oh, we saw the knee move, but good job. Good job. Let him step down. Help him out. Hudson, help him out. All right. Thank you, sir. <laughs> now, you really don't want to be in tomorrow's illustration. <laughs> Thank you, Devin. That illustration really pictures, though, life in Christ. He gives us his word, but he does not always explain how it's going to turn out. He says, my word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, Psalm 119, 105. In other words, it's enough to show you the next step. It's not enough to give you a floodlight for the journey. And oftentimes when the Lord asks us to do something, what he says is, trust me, I won't let you fall. But sometimes it seems like his voice is coming from the wrong direction. It seems like his voice is coming from an oncology unit at the hospital. It seems like his voice is coming through a broken relationship. It seems like his voice is coming through unemployment. It's in, and we say, Lord, where are you? And he says, have I failed my word? I am who I say I am. And my goal is to make you look like Christ. And we're going to talk more about what that looking like Christ is again a little later. So the first thing we see is a command. But this command to rejoice is really a command of faith. It's a reminder of who he is, and it's a reminder of his faithfulness to us. Now, with that being said, let's move on to the second thing that we see. And we see there's not just a command to rejoice. There's also a concern. And this concern begins in verse 2. He says, look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I'm not going to focus too much on this, and that's just, uh, again, 
time and where we're going to choose to, to, to dwell. But notice when he says dogs, this is actually what the Jews would call the Gentiles oftentimes. We can see this in Matthew chapter 15, for instance. Remember when Jesus is talking to the, the um, Canaanite woman that comes and she has a sick child and Jesus says, is it right to, to uh, give the food to the dogs? Uh, Again, I don't think Jesus is saying that in calling her a dog whatsoever. In fact, I think what he's actually doing is he's testing what she hears all the time. Is it right for me to throw the food to the dogs? Almost baiting her to see, do you really know who you are? You're not a dog. And what does Paul do? He flips it around. He says, look out for the dogs. Who's he calling dogs? The very ones who are calling other people dogs. Now, we're not just talking about a house pet dogs. In fact, when, we, when I was in Mumbai yesterday, I saw quite a few uh, stray dogs roaming around. I don't know if you have a, quite a few in Bangalore as well, but I know when I lived in Cairo, we had loads of dogs, and dogs were not a household pet. Dogs were a nuisance in society. They were these, uh, these animals that carried disease, and they were preying on whatever they could get. This is the idea right here. These are men who carry disease, a disease of the soul. And this disease we're going to see Paul bring out really is legalism. And and, and let me just say this right away from the beginning. Legalism is not, uh, oftentimes I think we we misidentify it. This is not uh, an attack on pure obedience to the word of God but rather it's on recognizing the foundation of our salvation and it's understanding the things that cloud what really makes us righteous before God. See, if we ever think our works have anything to do with it, that's different than obedience to the word of God, if that makes sense. And we'll we'll talk about that a bit later on um, in just a few minutes, actually. So look out for the dogs. It also says, look out for the evildoers or the workers of evil. Usually, uh, it wasn't talked about in a negative way when it referred to those who are working, doing good works and whatever the case is. But here, Paul warns them against evil workers. And I believe these evil workers are those that are pushing a, a salvation of works. In fact, when you get to Matthew chapter 7 and Jesus talking to um, the crowds there on the Mount of the Beatitudes, as it's oftentimes referred, he says very specifically that one day many are going to say to him, did we not do this in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many great works in your name? Jesus never says the Father is going to say, no, you didn't. Almost like he's going to say, yeah, I know you cast out demons in my name. Yeah, I know you did many great things in my name. I know you did many works in my name. I'm not denying that. But I never knew you, but to know him. I never knew you. And then what does he call them? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because you see, the only true fulfillment of the law is the grace of Jesus Christ. The only true fulfillment of the law is in the one who fulfilled the law. Otherwise, we're all workers of lawlessness. So Paul says, look out for the evil doers. And then look out for those who mutilate the flesh. See, this is a primary way to even see new life in Christ. When somebody comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's no longer about starting on the outside in this transformation. In other words, it, back in the, in, in the times of the law, I mean, let's say uh, the ceremonial law, What did we see? We saw that when somebody wanted to be identified as the people of God, 
there were a lot of external traits that, that they had. One of the first was circumcision. So every male, you could see that they were a Jew by the cutting of skin. But then they had a lot of other external features. For instance, men were not allowed to shave the corners of their beard. You're clearly violating the law, the ceremonial law right now. Now, now, I'm going to guess that you might be even violating, if I looked at the tag on your shirt right now, you might be violating the same passage. Because in that same passage, you can't have mixed fabrics on your clothing. That's the same passage that people like to talk about tattoos. Same thing is in that passage. Why? Outside markings on your skin. Outside clothing you wear. Outside shaving that you're having. No bull haircuts. And then how about your diet? You got to make sure that you're not putting certain things into your body. Outside elements, those who mutilate the flesh. What's happening here? He's saying your identifying feature is your external. And some people say, well, you know, external is important. No, it's way more drastic than that. See, in Colossians 2.11, we see that there's a circumcision of the heart that's happened. And God doesn't transform us from outside in He transforms us from inside out. I spent a lot of time ministering in North America, and especially in the United States, there's a a huge element within the church where we're trying to change a country by external practice. And we want to pass legislation and laws. And I'll tell you, a country's not going to be changed. And I'm, I'm not looking for a country to be changed, period. I'm looking for souls to be changed. But a country's not changed... Through external actions. It's changed through a transformation of the heart. And the transformation of the heart only happens through the power of God. And the power of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what? So what if we have a country where, I'm talking United States here, where there's no homosexuality? Are any more souls on their way to eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ? No! I'm not about going and legislating the sexual identities of it. No, it's the gospel that must be preached because that changes you from inside out. And that's not just going to change some form of identification. It's going to change your heart. It's going to change your words. It's going to change the way you hear. It's going to change the way you see. It's going to change the way you love. It's going to show the world who Jesus is. So Paul says, look out. And I would say in the church today, look out for those that just want you to clean up on the outside instead of letting the Holy Spirit target the heart. Because when God targets the heart, you're going to have another fruit, and that fruit's going to be love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, patience. you got the whole list. Go to Galatians 5. Moving on. So we see here this concern. He says, be careful. Be careful of this demographic. But then he gives his own life as a personal illustration. And he says, look at this. And he names quite a few things. His resume. First, look at his practice. This is his heredity, if we could say it like that. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Then he says, look at my people. So we have his practice. We have his people. This is the nobility. What does he say about his people? He says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. This is where the first king came from in Israel. This is the tribe of Benjamin also was the territory with Jerusalem, their holy city. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of one of the greatest tribes. I'm of the tribe that sided with Judah when we divided. I've got the right people that I'm part of. 
Then notice his pedigree. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Where was Paul? He was in Philippi. Philippi was a, a well, I mean, that's not, that, I'm not saying that's where he's from. I'm saying that's where he was at the time. But there was a very much a, a Hellenistic culture, the Greek culture there. But Philippi was actually an area that was like a Rome away from Rome. It was controlled there by the Romans. So there's still these rights of Roman citizens. But Paul, Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means that he wasn't just a Jew. He was an Orthodox Jew. In other words, he's the kind of kid that grew up feeling like probably awkward within his Roman environment because he dressed like the Hebrews. He practiced like an Orthodox Hebrew. He had to go to, uh, I think it's called Hazan, which is the, the, the school that Jewish kids would go to. In other words, I'm not just a Hebrew in name. I was a Hebrew in practice. This is my family life. So he says, this is my practice. This is my people. This is my pedigree. Uh, In fact, by the age of five years old, they were reciting significant portions of the Torah. And by six, by, by, by nine, ten... This was something ingrained into them. So Paul, he's like, I've got the right pedigree. But look at his piety. He he goes on. He doesn't just say, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. We look at Pharisees as a negative thing oftentimes. But I think Pharisees were really men who desired to, if I can say, please God. I believe in their wrong, oftentimes they were very zealous even when what they perceive true. So when he's saying, I was a Pharisee, he's saying, I was respected. I sought to obey every element of the law. When you go to Matthew chapter 23, and I think verse 35, you get into like Jesus talking about how they tied the mint and the cumin. Like they went to the little, small degrees of the law. He's saying, this was me, my piety. It was there. He's giving his resume. He's saying, I am just like these ones I said, look out for. I get this. Then look at his passion. Very interesting. He says, my passion was to persecute the church. Verse 6. And then not just his passion, but look at his purity. (laughs) He says... As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul is laying out saying, this is what I was identified as. This is what people saw of me. He's laying out what was, but then he moves to this all-important last element we want to focus on. He says, now that you've seen the command, now that you've seen the concern, let's start counting. Let's see what's actually important. And how do we count? How do we assess value? That's what I want to ask you all right now. As I look out at your lives and as I look at the mirror image of my own life, I ask, am I seeing things through the value of eternity? Am I assessing things the way God would want things assessed? This is what Paul hits on right here. Look what he says. Verse 7. Whatever gain... Pause there. That word gain, it's plural. Make sure you write that down. The word gain is plural. He's taking that ledger and he's putting up all the gains of his life. I just noted some of these gains. His practice, his people, his pedigree, his piety, his passion, his purity. These were all gains of his life. So so think of that as your story. What are the things that somehow, in some way... You're like, man, this has value. 
Now, you might not like to admit it, but please put down everything you see as value. Put down money as value. Put down your position in your family, your position at your company, your position in society as value. Put down anything that you view as value. And by the way, if you want to identify value, ask what would bring sadness to your life if it was removed? What would cause you to complain if it wasn't there anymore? That's value to you. Put down everything that has value, plural, whatever gain I had, what things were gained to me, then what does he do? He says, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Do you notice the tense there? Past tense. He says, I had counted whatever was gained. When Acts chapter 9 came and I was knocked off my horse and I was blinded and Jesus met me on the road, the things I had counted as gain all of a sudden were recognized as loss. Now, that's just a start. That's past tense. But look at, he changes tenses. He goes from, I counted as loss, and then he says, for the sake of Christ, indeed, I count. We had past tense. Now in verse 8, we have present tense. I had counted, and now I count. That tells me something. It tells me that 30 years later, Paul is still counting. Just because in the past, at one point, you counted things up, and you said Jesus is worth it, you know what that tells me? It tells me things are going to creep in your life that are going to require you to get back to that desk, get your ledger back out, And count again. I had counted. But last time, what did he count it as? He said, I counted it as what? Loss. He's going to do a recount. In the United States, they had an election about 14 years ago, and they had to do a recount. Because it came down to a few votes. Paul does a recount. And his recount shows that it was not just a loss, does it? Paul uses a word that if I gave you the real word... I wouldn't be invited to speak probably tonight. It's a very strong word. In English, it's a word that we don't really use much. So I'm not going to use that one. I'll just use the word dung. It's crap to say it lightly. It's something that nobody wants to touch. It's something nobody wants a part of. It's something you keep to yourself and keep far away from others. It's not just a loss. It is offensive. Paul says, I I think I didn't count it right. It's not just a loss. It's more than a loss. It's offensive. Do you see the things that we hold as value as offensive to Jesus Christ? When I say offensive, I mean anything, and I'm going to, I'll briefly, I'm going to end on this because it's going to end on a lot of questions, but I want you to see that when we actually start doing the assessment, the assessment of value, We're going to see all these things in a totally different light, and we're going to see why it actually is offensive. But pause for a second. I want you to see that there were a few things, and uh, make sure you write these down because I want you to think about them in your own time. What were the things that Paul had to assess? Well, I think he assessed, um, first, I'll just name them all for you, and we can talk about them. He, He assessed his priorities. He assessed his possessions. He assessed his predicaments, the circumstances of his life. He assessed what was precious to him, preciousness. But then he also assessed his person 
and he assessed his perspectives. But let's just think about his person. Again, all of these we could talk about. We just don't have time to dive into them, but we can have those personal conversations in our two-on-two and also in just over meals. But think about his person. When Paul came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says that he is the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. He says he's not even worthy to be called an apostle in that verse. So that's where Paul starts out. He says, I am the least of the apostles. But why? What's his focus? Because of what he did. He saw his person. His assessment of who he was was because of what he did. I see a lot of Christians like that, by the way. I see a lot of Christians who try to invalidate what God has called them to do because they're looking at their own works instead of what Christ has done for them. Paul was not worthy to be called an apostle because of anything he did. Romans chapter 1, he's worthy to be called an apostle because God called him to be an apostle. What God has called you to, and it says the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, what God has called you to qualifies you, nothing you've ever done. That's where it started out. But then later in his life, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. And Paul says to the church, he says, I am the least of, I'm sorry, no, no, the first is least of the apostles. Um, and then he says, yeah, I'm the least of the saints. But that's significant too, because when you say least of the saints, he actually says, because of the grace given to me. I think he saw how much grace God had shown in his life. He says, man, I'm the least. But, but we would be like, Paul, like, have you seen, you know, have you seen Jobin over there? Like, you, you, you might be second least, but you're not least. Have you seen Nate? You're, you're like third least, but you're not least. Have you seen Hudson? Maybe fourth least, but not least. He says, no, I'm the least. All right, Paul's getting closer. <laughs> you see, first he was looking at himself, and he said, I'm the least of the apostles. Now he says, I'm the least of the saints, but he's looking at God's grace. That's good. But the end of Paul's life in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Timothy, I want to tell you something that's trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. At the end of Paul's life, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. I would say, Paul, you went backwards. Like you were least of the apostles and least of the saints, and now you're the chief of sinners. That's not the right direction. But look at what Paul saw. First, he saw himself. And he didn't even see how bad he was. Later on, he saw on the least of the saints because he was seeing the grace of God. But at the end, all he saw was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he realized a truth. And that is that I am far more wicked than I ever imagined. But I'm far more loved than I ever dreamed was possible. That's the gospel that does not only save your soul, it's a gospel that daily transforms your life. And if at first you count things simply as, that wasn't good, that didn't help me out much. When you keep seeing the gospel, you're going to get to a point saying, that is utterly disgusting in the light of eternity. How can I have any affection for that thing? Not because that thing in and of itself is bad, but because that thing keeps you from your goal of knowing Christ more. This is where it all comes back. My brothers, my sisters, 
when, when Paul lays this out before us, he's saying it with passion, saying, I'm not telling you this to make your life difficult. I'm giving you the secret. I'm telling you where you're going to find your value, your meaning. We have to learn to count in the light of eternity. So the three things Paul does as he counts here is first we see him add up all these things, and then we see him assess. What is this assessment? That's what I want to do right now, because I have like five minutes left. And I want to do an assessment to close out. He has to add up, he has to assess, and then he's going to acknowledge. But the acknowledgement, we'll, we'll look at, we'll, we'll add that to the final meeting. I want to end on an assessment. I want to ask you some questions for us to meditate on as we think about counting. And it's going to all come back to rejoicing at the end. First thing to think about. When you look at your priorities and your perspectives and your possessions and your person and all these things that I named, ask yourself, how do these things make me treasure Jesus Christ more? About everything. You've got that whole list of things you're adding up. Ask, how does this make me treasure Jesus Christ more? And let me just go ahead and suggest to you, if it doesn't, it needs to go or it needs to change. Because everything in our life has significance as it pertains to the value of Christ to us. If something is distracting us, ultimately, it's not just loss. It's not just setting you back. You see, when something is lost, that, that means it's not just like, eh, it's no good. It means it's actually like putting you backwards. If you like sports and your team loses, that's worse than having not played a game, right? Like, you didn't just not win. You actually lost. That's how we have to view everything in the light of our relationship with Christ and then go stronger and say, it's not just loss, it's disgusting. It's dung. It's complete crap in the light of eternity. Okay, how about this? Taking all those things that we've assessed, not only how does it make me treasure Jesus Christ more, but how does it allow me to show Jesus Christ more clearly to the world around me? In other words, when I think of my possessions or I think of my perspectives, do I point people to the cross of Jesus Christ or do I actually point them away from the cross? When we get to the end of this weekend, we're going to discuss our citizenship. And if I'm just honest with the church, I look at most Christians, and I, I, I'm not going to back down on that statement, most Christians... I would say for most Christians, I would think you belonged on earth. I would say your home is here. I would say your primary identity is here. I would say you actually love being here. I would say that we're not very homesick. I would say that our primary investments are here. I have to ask myself, what if Jesus meant what he said? Like, what if he actually meant what he said? Because if he meant what he said, Jesus Christ told me, he says, Nathan, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's not a suggestion. He's not saying, hey, it's a good idea not to like, have too much here. <laughs> he says, Nathan, don't do it. This is like the God of the universe who loves me so much, became a man, dwelt among us, died for my sins. He says, Nathan, come here. I, I, want, I want you to know me. Secret. 
Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because there's moth and there's rust and they're going to corrupt and there are thieves they are going to break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt, where thieves can't break in and steal because where your treasure is, your heart's going to follow right behind. Jesus gives us the inside scoop to knowing him. He says, the choice is yours, but what are you going to do? Do we look at everything we have in the relation to how it causes us to treasure Christ and how it shows Christ more clearly in our life? This is the assessment we must make. So, I'll say finally, as Paul, but this time I'm just going to end on a little illustration. This illustration is not original, but it's so powerful, so I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to close in prayer. And then whoever follows, come on up. But I want us to realize that as we assess everything we have, it all comes back to what I'm about to share. Let me ask you a little question. And uh, a couple of us were at IBF, and this is actually where I first had ever heard it. But I need to ask you a question. How many of you have ever played the game of Monopoly? If you play the game of Monopoly, this will resonate a lot more with you. If you haven't, it's okay. You'll still get the point. I first learned the game of Monopoly from my grandmother. My grandmother taught me how to play the game Monopoly. Now, my grandmother was a wonderful person. My grandmother raised six children, and she was a widow by the time I knew her well. She lived in our house for many, many years, and... Oh, my grandmother, she was a great woman, but she was the most ruthless Monopoly player I've ever met in my life. She understood that the name of the game is to acquire. And when we would play, I was a little kid, and I would get my money from the bank, and I would always want to save it. I would want to hang on to it because it was just so much fun to have money. She spent on everything she landed on. And then when my grandmother bought it, she would mortgage it as much as she could and buy everything else she landed on. My grandmother would accumulate everything she could, and eventually she became the master of the board. Every time I landed on my grandmother's land, I would have to pay her money, and eventually my grandma took everything I had in my last dollar, and I would have to quit in utter defeat. Then... She would look at me and she would say the same thing. One day, you'll learn to play the game. Oh, I hated it when she said that to me. But one summer, I played Monopoly with a neighbor kid, a friend of mine, almost every day. We would play all day long. We would play Monopoly for hours. And that summer, I learned to play the game. I came to understand the only way to win is to make a total commitment to acquisition I came to understand that money and possessions, that's the way you keep score. And by the end of that summer, uh, I was more ruthless than my grandmother. I was ready to bend the rules if I had to, to win the game. And so I sat down to play with my grandma. Slowly, cunningly, I exposed my grandmother's vulnerability relentlessly, inexorably, I drove my grandma off the board. Oh, the game does strange things to you. I can still remember. It happened at Marvin Gardens. I looked at my grandmother, the the, the woman who taught me to play the game, uh, an old lady right now, 
she was a widow. She had raised my mom. She loved my mom. She loved me. I took everything she had. I destroyed my grandmother financially. I destroyed her psychologically. I watched my grandmother give her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. It was the greatest moment of my life. And then she had one more thing to say to me. She said, now it all goes back in the box. All those houses and hotels, all those railroads and utility companies, all that property and all that wonderful money, now it all goes back in the box. I didn't want it to go back in the box. I wanted to leave the board out and maybe bronze it over and leave it as a memorial to my ability to play the game. But she said, no, it all goes back in the box. You got all heated up about it for a while, but it was around a long time before you sat down at the board, and it'll be here a long time after you're gone. Players come and players go, but it all goes back in the box. And so the game ends. Every player, the game ends. Every day you pick up a newspaper, and and you can see a part in the newspaper where it shows all the people for whom the game ended this week. It all goes back in the box. Your houses, your cars, your titles, your possessions, your bulging portfolios, and even your body. It all goes back in the box. What things were gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. May we learn to count even as the Lord would have us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's true, it's living. And Lord, teach us to apply our heart to wisdom that we might know you more. In your name I pray, amen. And I apologize, I 